This is Coffee Number Five. I'm your host, Lara Schmoisman. Welcome to a new episode of Coffee Number Five. Our guest today is Dr. Sheila Nasarian, a very well-known plastic surgeon. She's the founder of Nasarian Plastic Surgery, Spa 26. She launched the Skin Spot, a collection of medical-grade skincare products, and creator of the Nasarian Institute and Think Big, a space for people who want to expand as a brand. You can also see her in the Netflix show, Skin Decision Before and After. Sheila, thank you so much for being here, sipping coffee, number five or six maybe for me today. But I want to talk to you today. I mean, you're such an example of a powerful woman, but not because of powerful of what you accomplish or who you are today. I think you're such a powerful woman from who you are and where you're coming from. And that's a story that not many people talk about. So who is the real Sheila? Where are you coming from? Yeah, of course. Nice to be on with you, Lara. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, I think, you know, I think it's kind of an underdog story. My mom was uh, nine months pregnant. She flew from Iran to New York to give birth to me so she could have a citizen as a child. And um, then flew back to Iran. It was 1979. It was the revolution. And you know, we're Jewish, we're very Jewish. And it kind of, you know, didn't end up so great for Jews in Iran, unfortunately, uh, a lot of restrictions, we weren't allowed to leave the country. And a lot of this stuff I'm going to tell you kind of, I learned recently, um, because my family was very reticent to, to talk about it. Um, so basically, my dad is a pathologist, and he ran the Shah's heart hospital in Iran. And one of his technicians was kind of in the besiege. So he was in the revolutionary guard that overthrew the Shah. And it was 1985. It was the Iran-Iraq war. There was bombs everywhere. And my dad had, had actually saved this technician's eyesight. He had diagnosed him with a parasite in his eye and it saved his eyesight. So the technician came to my dad and said, listen, you saved my eyes. I'm going to save your life. You're on the kill list and you have to leave the country tonight. And so he was basically on this list to be murdered. Um, so he basically left my mom, my sister and I's passport with the government and said he was going on a medical mission and left the country. And so we were kind of there by ourselves for a little while. Uh, and there was a there's an organization called HIAS, H-I-A-S, that helped a lot of the Jews get out of Iran at the time. And this is a really interesting story, Laura, that I just found out three years ago because it was actually um, classified information. I was asked to donate to this Persian Jewish organization, as it ha frequently happens in L.A. They were having an event with someone who served in the Carter administration. And I was like, sure, I'll sponsor this event. And I go with my husband. We had no idea who the speaker was. We had no idea what we were getting into. And the guy that was there actually um, gave us all this information. So Carter, when there was an Iran-Contra issue, you know, they're holding American hostages. Carter gave the mandate to get all Iranians out of America, which meant the Baha'is, which meant the sons and daughters of people who served in the Shah's army. And if they would have been sent back, they all would have been killed. Okay. So this gentleman had actually, you know, heard about what happened during the Holocaust, where a lot of German Jews had asked, you know, Roosevelt to get seek asylum in the US and were turned away. And they were killed. So when he found this out, he said, if that opportunity ever lands on my desk that I could save lives, I'm going to take it. So what he did is even though Carter gave the, you know, mandate, get all the get all the Persians out of America. What he did is he went and found out that if Persians file for, for asylum 
And the asylum applications are locked in a closet and never looked at. They can't make the Persians leave. And not only that, he worked with this, this, these people that helped get me and my family out. So imagine me, I'm sitting in the audience listening to this guy speak who I don't know who he is. And he single-handedly saved our lives. So he not only did he prevent the Persians in America to be sent back to Iran, he also allowed other people in Iran to file for asylum applications that he locked in a closet to never be looked at so that they, so that we could get in too. This is an incredible story. And there's so many uh, incredible stories out there. We don't know. I mean, my family went from Russia to Argentina. I mean, we have crazy stories. No, there. Russia was, was, are you Jewish too, Laura? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, Russia was really bad. I mean, really bad. I just recently was on um, Violet Benson's podcast and she had a similar story. She's also a Russian Jew. Horrible things happened to her. Yeah, I, I'm 100% Russian Jew that immigrated to Argentina. Like, actually, it was really funny. Someone came to my house yesterday and they want to speak Russian to me. They get really offended because they see that I have an accent. It's not the Latin accent, the normal Latin accent, because I married to an Israeli. So I got a lot of his accent. And, but they, I look so Russian that they cannot deny it that I am 100%. So I want to come back to you. And so you came to the United States. Yeah, so we came to the U.S. You know, we, we, my family, my mom, my sister and I actually escaped on the back of a pickup truck. We went to a bazaar one day. They threw corn on top of us, smuggled us across the border to Pakistan. We were there for three months waiting for visas. Finally reunited with my dad in Vienna. Came over here, you know, totally ESL, totally fresh off the boat. I always joke, like, I had a mustache and hairy legs and my mom wouldn't let me do anything about it. You know, just really nerdy. I was, you know, super smart at the time, but I think I had a bit of imposter syndrome, like, oh, they're going to figure me out. They put me in a gifted class, but they're going to come back and say it was a mistake or, you know, things like that. Um, But thinking back on it now, it's like, no, I was pretty smart. Um, But it took me a long time to kind of get to the point to know what my strengths are and know what my weaknesses are and be able to speak openly about both. Because as a woman, you know, it's like, oh, if you say you're something you're good at, you're bragging. If you say something you're not good at, you're weak. So it's just, I'm just so over that. Like, if you're good at something, just say Yeah, it. same. Yeah, it's like, why are you going to, I mean, at some point, you're going to figure it out anyway. So why not? But you found not only such a niche in your life, you found also the understanding of what make people click. Yeah, I think it's coming from a point of, you know, empathy. I think it's being a nerd, having been teased for being, you know, the way that I was, Laura was super skinny. I mean, people would drop skeletons in my backpack in Halloween, you know. We're, we're the opposite. I was the over, overweight girl. So <laughs> I, I understand you from the other side. Yeah, it goes both ways, I guess. But um, no, I mean, just always, you know, coming from a place of like, but you know, that fuels you, right? It's like, I'm going to prove people wrong. It can be very motivating, but it can also be very like, restrictive. So it took me a while to sort of say, you know what, I'm not doing this to prove anyone wrong anymore. I'm just doing what makes me happy and what fulfills me. Yeah. And I think that's liberating. I think that's, that's not only you feel like, okay, I can do this. It's like, I'm going to do it, whatever you think is right or not. I'm just doing it for me. And that's when you find the real self. And like, I always say like the fact that I can do this podcast, I like my English is self-taught. So, I mean, I, the fact that I'm doing a podcast is like unthinkable for me to speak in English. 
And he threw it. At some point, he said, well, not, I don't give a fuck. And I just do it. It's just, for me, it's more important to hear other people's stories. Yeah, not just that. But, you know, when you share people's stories, and I think we all have stories, you inspire others. And you say, well, she did it. I can do it. And that, that has such profound ripple effects that when you're starting, like when I did the Netflix show, honestly, Laura, in my head, it was like, oh, my friends and family are going to see me on TV. But when you start getting messages from like Nigeria and the Philippines and Brazil, like all these places, you're like, holy shit, like everyone's looking at it. (laughs) Absolutely. But also it's so humbling to people like send messages to you. And and I'm sure you know that there's those two sides of the people, the people that admire you and the other people say, look at her, look what she's doing. Oh, yeah. I've been I've been on the the receiving end of the look at her, look what she's doing for many years. But then once you reach a pinnacle, once you reach that turning point, which for me was the show, then everybody becomes team team Sheila, like team, you know. And, and, and how do you deal with that with people that you felt like they were like, looking at you like look what is she doing and now oh we are friends again how do you deal with that you know I think I don't have that many people that close to me it's I always think of it as I always say give like a Thanksgiving or Shabbat dinner analogy you know like what does it take for you for it to feel like Thanksgiving do you need the turkey do you need the gravy maybe you can do with or without the cranberry sauce you know you have to figure out who's at the Thanksgiving table of your life who wants to see you succeed And those are the people you vest your energy and care about the opinions of. You shouldn't care about the opinions of people who'd rather see you fail. And absolutely, there are some people that, and I found this in my life changing too, that it's like they enjoy when you fall and they will be there when you fall, but they cannot be there with you when you succeed. Yeah. It was the same thing. I lost 80 pounds at some point in Mm -hmm. my life. When And it was very strange. People that they would never be my friends before, they wanted to be my friends. And the ones that they were my friends were, look at her now. And it was, why? I'm still the same person. And it's always interesting, too, when it's people who've never met you making the comments. It's like, you've yeah. never even talked one word with me. Like, how are you forming your opinion? This is what I love about podcasts. And I, it's very intriguing for me how this clubhouse is going to work out too, because it's all about what people have to say. Though I found a lot of people talking without knowing what they're saying. You as a doctor, people come to you and of course, everyone diagnoses, you know that. And everyone knows what to do and what they want. How do you deal, come with a patient that they say, I know what I need. I know, would you take any patient? No, I don't take any patient. I'm always, um, I always do a virtual consult first. Like every Wednesday, my day is filled with virtual consults. And it's interesting because the patient's, pretty much 80% know that I'm their doctor. um, But I'm basically interviewing them to see if they're capable of happiness, or if they have realistic expectations, or if they're, you know, just anatomically a good candidate for the procedure that they're seeking. But I rarely have patients coming to me asking me, you know, telling me I need this anymore. They basically come to me and the trust and the credentialing has already been done on social media and with the show. And so really, it's kind of whatever I tell them they need, they want to do that. And at that point, it's kind of like, what's their budget? Okay. Because I feel like so many people have, uh, I won't say even body dysmorphia, but expectations of having a nose that it doesn't fit their functions. Right. I mean, that's part of my job and that's part of my interview process. So when I'm doing those virtual consults, I'm seeing where their brain space is at mostly. 
because I can improve something on everyone, right? We can improve the skin. We can improve the eyelids, the breasts, the whatever it is, even the labia, the vagina, whatever. I mean, it can, really the question is, is this person's brain space ready to receive? Are they capable of happiness? That Those are the things that I'm constantly evaluating. And if the answer is no, I don't take them on as a patient. And what about doing it for the right reasons? Because yeah, I if feel it's like- for the right reasons, I'm here to help. Yeah, because there are so many people that feel like they're, they're doing all these treatments because there are a thousand treatments out there and they just doing it because of how they think that they will be perceived. Mm-hmm. And perception is important. And don't get me wrong, but it's not everything. If that perception is there, but your heart and your mind are not in the right place, I mean, you're not going to become smarter by having a surgery. No, and what's interesting is also, I think, with the branding that we've done and with the digital marketing that we've done, we have very intentionally and strategically put out a voice to that strong, established man or woman who's just looking to optimize. And that's who we attract. We're not everyone's doctor. We're not looking to attract the people that uh, think plastic surgery is going to make them happier or, you know, save their relationship or things like that. I I love that. It's more like a maintenance program. It's like working out. Yeah. It's like working out or eating healthy. It's part of that. And and what I love is that you show a lot of things that you do to yourself. I know. I love that you're so open that you say, hey, I get this treatment. There are a lot of people that they show how great they are. They look in the bikini. Oh, no, I don't do anything. I do it for my patients only. Yeah. No, no, no. That's when you can speak from, you know, personal experience and you say, oh, this really doesn't hurt or this one hurts a little, but it's totally worth it. Trust me, you know. Um, well, all, we all have different uh, tolerance, but it's it's worth to share experience. I learned early on that there are so many things that people won't talk about, that they have to be secretive. And I learned early on that sometimes if you open about those things, you find out that many people are going through the same problem. And something that you, I mean, I always tell the story that they told me basically my son was Down syndrome because I got a false positive. Uh, I cried for two weeks. And if I would have talked, probably I would have learned that a lot of people will, were having the same issue. Yeah, it's really difficult. I think as immigrants too, it's very difficult because a lot of things are very secretive, you know, for immigrants. I think our kids aren't going to have the same baggage. I, I really hope so. I really hope so because this is something, I, it fascinates me, the psychology of the, the, the cultural because uh, up to our generation, most of this country were, we were immigrants mostly, or sons or daughters of immigrants. And there is such a big factor of what it's okay for a woman or a man to do by a rule of culture. And that's what it brings me again to what you do. How do you much you think that their culture affects in what women or men want to do to their body? I mean, a lot especially, you know, 50% of our patients fly in uh, to see us. So they could be flying in from Utah. They could be flying in from Miami. They could be flying in from Dubai. They could be flying in from Alaska. I mean, you know, Canada, like everywhere. So I think culturally it matters. It might even, they might even be flying in from the Middle East because they only want a woman doctor and they'll ask for a completely female OR team female anesthesiologist, female nurse, female tech, because of their cultural restrictions and who can see them naked, you know? Uh, But 
again, I will tell you, I think that we've niched ourselves to that natural result. Our hashtag is natural by Nazarian. So our whole goal is so no one knows you had anything done. And I will tell you that in and of itself gets rid of a lot of unstable people. Yeah. But you feel like there are certain, for example, uh, there are certain, I will say Jewish women, there are certain things that the Jewish woman will never do because they're Jewish. Like what? I don't know. It's just wondering that is, if it's a cultural thing or a social thing. I know. Well, I'll tell you, I think it's, I think it's more of like, like, I'll tell you something. It's not that a particular procedure, but I've had tons of women get in my chair and be like, I feel so guilty for being here. Like I shouldn't be spending money on and time on myself. I feel so narcissistic, but you know, it's funny, Laura. I just tell them like, do you want your daughter to feel that way when they're an adult? And they're always like, no, I don't want my daughter to feel that way. Well, you have to model that behavior. Absolutely. I believe that we are the prime examples to our kids. And if you are, uh, and what we were talking earlier today, doesn't matter how many times you fall, you get up and you try again. And that's what your kids are going to be remembering about you. Not that you did some Botox or some uh, nose job. No, not at all. I mean, it's interesting. My daughter had her bat mitzvah this year, Zoom bat mitzvah. But uh, the rabbi, you know, got on the thing with her and he said, you know, what is it? What is something you admire about your parents? And she said, you know, I admire that my mom sets goals and accomplishes them. And she said, you know, I admire about my dad, his storytelling and his joke and his, you know, his his humor. And the rabbi was, it was so cute. He told her, you know, usually when I ask that of bar and bat mitzvahs, they say, I admire how they take care of me. You know, they always say they bring it back to something that their parents have done for them rather than thinking of their parents as individuals that have accomplished things for themselves. <laughs> yeah. So I think they're seeing that. I think they're, I think they're seeing that uh, behavior that like you are your own person you, you can have kids, you can have a husband, but you matter as an individual and your goals and accomplishments are seen. Yeah. I mean, I seen it very early on since I was volunteering my kids school that I didn't want to be called like Owen's mom or, um, Oh, Mrs. Schmoisman, no, I have a name. I'm Laura, and that's okay. You can still respect me if you call me by my name. But I'm a person beyond my son, even though my son is here. And I, I always raise them with those values. So you're a mother of three. How do you handle all that? <laughs> I think they're pretty independent. I think that's how I do it. Uh, I had them all during residency. So I had two during general surgery and one during plastic surgery. And, you know, we had housekeepers and nannies and stuff um, to take care of them, basically keep them alive until we got home. But, uh, you know, they still make their own breakfast. They cook dinner for themselves. Um, sometimes they make breakfast for me. Um, and, you know, they kind of have to fend for themselves and be independent and problem solve because we weren't, you know, even if, I, if I was home and maybe I was exhausted or I was sleeping. <laughs> so they're in one hand, as long as you can make those spaces for them, which I know you do. Yes, I do. I mean, it goes with the caveat, but I will tell you, micromanaging your kids and solving all their problems for them is not beneficial, I think, in the long term. Because, you know, eventually you have to make an independent adult who is capable of keeping a job and following some direction, at least for a certain part of their lives. So I see a lot of times, you know, on Instagram, it'll be like, quit your nine to five, follow your dreams and your passions, you know, but they'll help you be successful later in your thirties, you know? Exactly. And it's the same leading a team. 
I mean, I w- I'm asked a lot about how I lead my team because it's a large team and the same for you. And my team is all virtual and we're a huge family. But at, at the same time, is my philosophy is that I treat each person in my team like I would like my kids to be treated. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean fixing all the problems. It's about mentoring them to be better and yes, of course, they can come to me with questions or problems, but first they need to come back to me with solutions too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love that. So tell me about your team. How do you pick your team? How do you choose? A team? I know my strengths and my weaknesses. We discussed that in the beginning. And one of my weaknesses is I always assume people are hardworking and that they're going to do what they said they're going to do. Because in residency and in medical school, in order to go up that level of um, academics, you have to be a certain way and you're surrounded by people who are the same way. So you just think everyone is honest, you know, going to get the job done, go that extra mile. And that's just not true. So I realized very early on, I probably shouldn't be the one interviewing. So I have my team interview because they've been out there in the real world. They've done a lot of interviews and probably they can choose someone better than I can. So they decide on someone. I shake their hand their first day of work and I say, welcome, but I'll fire um, next week if it doesn't work out. So I don't let things fester. If it's not the right fit, I'm very quick to fire. I fired two people last week. Oh my God, we are sisters from another mother. You're, we are really twins. Everyone, I, we're very similar and it needs to work out and they need to be a teamwork. Yeah, and also like I, the way I think, you know, I was very uh, non-confrontational and I hated doing that. And I would feel super guilty about it, especially if they were a single mother or, you know, if they were the primary breadwinner. But I think what you have to do is if somebody's unhappy, you have to set them free to go find their joy. And that made me feel better about firing people. Not only that, the fact is that many people that they are not team players, they don't realize that this is a domino effect. Yeah, it is a domino effect. I hear you. And if it affects you, I will affect. Sometimes I say, you're not even doing it to me. You are doing it to your team. Yeah, exactly. That matters too. Uh, that matters a lot because that is in, in the team feelings and how they feel themselves. And we only grow as a team. I, I don't grow together. I can be I mean, by myself. I can be my, my brand, but I will be nothing without my team. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Okay, Sheila, thank you so much for sharing your story. I mean, I feel like very, very touched that you shared the story with me. Oh, thank you, Laura. And all your wisdom. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, remember to leave a review. I will really appreciate it. If you want to know more about marketing and myself, follow me on Instagram. My handle is Lara Schmoisman. was so good to have you here today. See you next time. Catch you on the flip side. Ciao, ciao.